people are conditioned to 200 milliseconds at this point. Even, you know, waiting five seconds for a little spinner, that's really not going to cut it. Right, is this going to be, be a big deal in the future of blockchain and crypto technologies? It really is about those users and what's their experience. I see more and more projects including it strategically. We want to help other fellow hackers who can build it. We're sitting on systemically a bit of a landmine here. And so like security is going to have to get figured out for the future of computing. That's one thing that I think is very much missing, but could be literally the next inflection point that pops us out of this crypto winter. There's too much money chasing too few deals, too few ideas, and too few good people. And that's insane to me. Definitely there's too much money, but basically an infinite number of incredibly smart people. If you're paying attention to Hacker News and Hacker Noon and you're reading this stuff, this is the stuff that I read when I was you know, working for someone else's startup. So you and I are not different. We're the same. Afternoon podcast. I'm your host, Trent Lipinski. In this episode, we sit down with Gary and Brett from Initialize Capital. They're a venture capital firm here in San Francisco that's invested in companies such as Coinbase, Reddit, Instacart, Patreon, and Cruise. In this episode, we discuss emerging technologies and what makes them different from other venture capital firms. Today's show is sponsored by Datadog, a monitoring and analytics platform that integrates with more than 250 technologies, including all AWS services such as Lambda, Kubernetes, and Docker. Datadog unites metrics, traces, and logs in one platform so you can get full visibility into your infrastructure and applications. With powerful dashboards, anomaly and outlier detection, and distributed tracing, Datadog helps you get a handle on the performance of your serverless applications, as well as their underlying infrastructure. Try it for yourself by starting a free 14-day trial today. Listeners of this podcast will receive a free Datadog t-shirt. Sign up using the link in the description below. Welcome to the podcast. I'm here with Initialize Capital. Tell us a bit about what you guys are working on. Hey, my name is Gary Tan, uh, managing partner here at Initialize. And Brett, I'm a partner at Initialize. And uh, we actually met 10 years ago through Y Combinator. Brett ended up becoming a co-founder of my first startup, which was a company called Posturus. It's a dead simple blog platform. We're kind of accidental VCs in that in that respect. We didn't really plan on this. I joke with people there's only, well, maybe it's not a joke, but there's about four jobs in Silicon Valley. You're either a venture capitalist, a founder, an executive, or an employee. So you guys just kind of naturally fell into the VC seat, it seems. Yeah, more accidentally than not, I would say. It is a very big responsibility too, but we're pretty psyched to be able to do it. I mean, there can be a lot more startups that actually can succeed and be successful with actually the right backing and with the right people behind them. And Lord knows that we have a lot of difficult stories from people with venture capitalists. You know, that's something that clearly, if anything, at least do no harm. You know, beyond that, what can we do to help? And you guys have separated yourselves from Y Combinator a little bit, and you've obviously got your own fund now. Can you kind of explain? 
explain what went into that decision? Yeah, absolutely. Being able to work at Y Combinator was a crazy treat, honestly. I ended up becoming designer in residence in 2011. Paul Graham and Jessica Livingston basically ran that whole place for the first six years before bringing on their first outside partner, Harj Tagger, who's now a very close friend. And I heard that Harj and the team were looking for designers. And so I said, oh, I can do that. And uh, all I did was office hours helping people design their homepages and their first time experience. Talk about being in the right place at the right time. That was when the second billion dollar company emerged in the Y Combinator portfolio with Airbnb. And so in the Valley, as they say, one, you're lucky and two, you're good. And that was exactly the moment when Paul Graham and Jessica Livingston decided, hey, we need to scale our operation. And so I was part of that initial set of partners who got to join and help make the magic that is Y Combinator. And along the way, Brett came along and wrote a lot of the software that actually now runs YC. So the application recommendations, if you've ever applied to or recommended or gone to that apply.ycombinator.com site and that you've seen Brett, you've used Brett's. There's a little symmetry there and that you ended up at YC through design. And then I ended up there as a programmer. I will give your recommendation. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Basically, it wasn't something I ever thought that I you know, would even work at. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one thing that we really did discover is that it's just really fun to work with founders who are really great. And so YC is sort of this very intense experience, both for the founders who go through it, as well as the partners themselves. And I never really appreciated that second part until I was sort of going through that experience. And what one thing that I realized is when your YC partner, you actually have more or less very little control over your calendar. And so back then we were funding uh, between 40 and 80 companies per batch. Basically, your days during the week to help the companies were a form of office hours, just like what a professor would put up. And so you would put up some hours and then it would be a grab bag. You wouldn't actually know who you were going to meet. Um, sometimes it was awesome. And sometimes, you know, often you were running into uh, people on the worst day of their, <laughs> their startup. Yeah. You know, one thing that we really did realize is that it's really, really fun to have uh, much more control over which people you get to work with. And we started investing basically as a way to do placeholders that way, being able to work with Brian Armstrong at Coinbase very early, helping him think through uh, engineering decisions and how to hire his team in the weeks after demo day. That was the kind of thing that we loved to do. And so uh, Initialize started really as an experiment in trying to figure out how to angel invest. And, and Coinbase is now worth $8 billion? Is that yeah, correct? that's a rumor anyway. So <laughs> I'm not confirmed. I don't think it's a rumor. I think, is it a rumor? Or, 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 uh, I don't know. Are, are we getting into territory we can't discuss here? Or? Yeah, cannot <laughs> confirm or deny, but uh, okay. what says. Okay, and you've got a number of other pretty large investments here in companies like Instacart, Reddit, Patreon, Cruise. What else are you guys investing in right now? Well, the really cool thing about this job is... Uh, at the end of the day, and this is why it's such a, a treat to be uh, sitting down with you and to be talking about Talking Hacker Noon, simply because it does start with hackers at the end of the day. And when we funded Brian Armstrong, it wasn't that I had gone out and said, that's going to be the future. Actually, it was Brian Armstrong who quit his job at Airbnb as head of anti-fraud in 2011-2012 
right at the moment where that company was blessed as the next billion dollar company. Now, I didn't know that it would be a $30 billion company, but I know that I was trying to get my wife to go get a job there because (laughs) it was going to be something very, very special. And for someone to leave that situation, and we knew that they were a great engineer, that became clear that we get to figure out what the future is based on what really smart hackers decide. I'm going to devote my life to go work on that. And so, you know, whether it's Instacart in the on-demand space, that era basically happened you know, right at the moment when a smartphone penetration went from 10 or 20% in society to 80%. And so suddenly there was this idea that you could have a large uh, workforce being deployed purely through smartphones. Apoorva came up with that idea and basically built the real demo. Like he built something that he deployed to his first hundred friends. Uh, at YC, you get to see a lot of people with a lot of ideas. We saw uh, a ton of people who said they wanted to do it. But Apoorva was the first person who actually sent me the test flight link. And then when that didn't work, he actually sent me a six pack of beer to my door at Y Combinator in office hours. That was actually the you know craziest thing. So to us, it really does come back to you and your readers and your listeners and viewers that at the end of the day, that's where it comes from. It doesn't come from us as, as the PCs. And then in terms of both uh, my background and Brett's background, like I wish that I had time to code and then <laughs> Brett still gets to. So you know we, we hope to not ever be different. And you've touched on something really good there that I think is good for entrepreneurs to hear is it's about execution. You can have the best idea in the world and sometimes ideas get recycled and it's really about matching those ideas to an entrepreneur that can actually execute on them. It's a lot harder to actually execute on creating a successful business to actually achieve that valuation and to actually potentially achieve that kind of revenue as well. Yeah, ideas are merely multipliers on that execution. And so zero execution, best idea ever equals still zero. (laughs) Exactly. So, and you guys just raised a $225 million fund. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we started off doing very small checks. You know, it'd be a $50,000 check, uh, you know, sort of the first little bit towards a million dollar round. But we found that we would have to go and send 20 or 30 emails to all of the rest of our investor friends saying, hey, this is the one that's really good. You should do this. And so over time, what we've realized is it's actually easier for both us and for the founders if they don't have to do 20 or 30 more meetings. They can meet with us. They can have a unilateral yes, no decision. We don't really care if anyone else invests. Before, we didn't care. We would just be the yes or the no. And so now it's extra easy because now it's yes, no. And if it's a yes, they're done fundraising. Uh, Lord knows that for the people who really enjoy fundraising, maybe there's something wrong with those people. (laughs) Yeah, it was never my, uh, that was never my thing when it uh, came to running a startup. And even with some of the startups I work with right now, I usually defer that to the CEO. It's definitely a full-time job as an entrepreneur and as a CEO from the other side of the perspective to go raise funding, you know, you have to spend a lot of time and energy to find that right fit with an investor. Yeah. I mean, and having had to fundraise both as a VC more recently, but as a founder previously, it's the kiss of death to have one meeting, then another meeting and another meeting. And then nobody says no. And (laughs) they not say no. They don't actually even tell you, you know, what we can improve on. And so one thing that Brett and I and the whole team at Initialized really focus on is uh, when we will say yes or no, sometimes we can actually get to a yes, you know, a, a yes 
within three days, which is relatively difficult for our size to do. And then if it's a no, we'll tell you and we'll tell you why. And if you can fix that why, we'll actually, you know, happy to meet again. And we've actually funded, you know, out of the last fund, last year alone, I think there are at least two cases of companies where we said no initially and we told them why. The why was fixed and then we did end up funding it later. To us, that's the best possible case. Founders actually get help from a resolute decision one way or another and then just super frank advice on what would I do if I were you. Unfortunately, I've had to explain to far too many entrepreneurs about the art of the soft no in Silicon Valley. Um, With a ghost? (laughs) Yeah, Um, because you just... you know, it's it's such an interesting dilemma, especially as if you're like a newer entrepreneur and you haven't experienced this before. You think, you know, you're you're getting the meetings and you're you're getting to this next step, and no one's saying no, but they're not going to invest in you. Um, and it's a very frustrating feeling, and it's a very frustrating thing to experience because they're trying to be polite and they're trying to be nice, but at the same time, you're not getting that feedback that you need to be able to say, hey, you know, we're not going to invest in you, but if you do this maybe we will. Um, so is that kind of what sets you guys apart from maybe some of the other VC firms? Just the beginning part. I mean, we want every <laughs> piece of the experience working with founders to be different. You know, one of the things that you would get if Initialize funds you is Brett actually can come in and weigh in on you know, helping you close uh, engineering candidates or even doing technical interviews. So, you know, most of our founders are actually technical, but in cases where that's not true, sometimes that ends up being very helpful. Yeah. Who, who else uh, do we have? In terms of uh, help? I mean, yeah. we, you know, we have a pretty wide swath of, of talent that can help out with startups. There's Vince and myself who do engineering, our partner Kim is really good at PR marketing, our partner Jen is an amazing designer, operational advice, financial modeling with Eric. Always an attorney, which comes in pretty handy. Yeah, you never know. Sometimes it comes up and having all this help actually turns out to be really important because it's not only, um, you know, what you know, it's also who you know. And finding the right lawyer at the right time often is Mm -hmm. the most important thing. And then obviously Alexis can get your message Oh, yeah, oh, having one of our, <laughs> yeah, the co-founder of the fund creating, having created Reddit, that turns out to be a really insane superpower. <laughs> yeah, it's what, top five website on the internet in the US, something uh, like that? Three now, actually. They just surpassed three. Facebook in, as a website anyway. Uh, my favorite thing to watch is Alexis being able to do cold emails and then have them actually work. <laughs> well, when people know your name, when you send them the cold email, it's not as cold as, you know, <laughs> if right. someone doesn't know your name initially. So I'm sure that definitely helps to have him involved. But it is kind of interesting to point out, you know, there are a lot of very, very famous people and there are lots of very, very famous people who uh, turn into venture investors. But mm-hmm. I don't think I know any of anyone else other than Alexis, who is that generous with both his time and his network. But that's mm-hmm. also literally a core value for us. It's, you know, we're, we're here to help. That's it. Really. Yeah. I mean, we'd like to talk about it's informed from who we would want to work with as founders. You know, we want to fill that role and want to be here for Today's show is sponsored by Datadog, a monitoring and analytics platform that integrates with more than 250 technologies, including all AWS services such as Lambda, Kubernetes, and Docker. Datadog unites metrics, traces, and logs in one platform so you can get full visibility into your infrastructure and applications. With powerful dashboards, anomaly and outlier detection, and distributed tracing, Datadog helps you get a handle on the performance of your serverless applications, as well as their underlying infrastructure. Try it for yourself by starting a free 14-day trial today. Listeners of this podcast will receive a free Datadog t-shirt. 
Sign up using the link in the description below. What are some trends or new investment opportunities or markets that you guys are finding interesting right now? Yeah, well, we're obviously very interested in crypto and we're able to see Coinbase turn out to be really a juggernaut in that space. Since then, we've funded sort of more picks and shovel style businesses. You could probably argue that that's what Coinbase is. Coinbase is not actually making choices necessarily about running a big blockchain of their own. They actually support others. And so in the same way, Cointracker coming out of a recent Y Combinator batch, they're one of our favorite seeds you know, crypto seed investments and that working backwards from the dream of what crypto is, you know, if you can imagine a percentage of GDP of goods and services going through crypto networks, well, governments aren't really going to go away no matter what, no matter what maximalists uh, maximalist might say, uh, and governments are going to want their taxes. And so this is a you know very direct example of something that has incredibly high utility that is basically necessary uh, if you believe in crypto. It's also something that is incredibly technical. So being able to to support every wallet, every exchange, every weird use case, every weird bug in an API. That's actually an incredible amount of work. We met an incredibly technical team that was able to build that product. And we think that will you know, eventually become a multi-billion dollar company. And you know, that's just table stakes for crypto. Awesome. And what about your thoughts on ICOs? Uh, you know, obviously in 2017, we saw the ICO market kind of rise. And now in 2018, it's kind of petered out a little bit. Any thoughts on what happened with the ICO market and where you're seeing that market going or not going? I mean, obviously, like the the regulatory thing has been very big and sort of loomed over ICOs generally. You know, honestly, you know, there's been a lot of like get rich quick activity and speculation. Um, I tend to believe that if there certainly are cases where it makes sense and you should be selling a token because that value is going to accrue to the token. But in terms of like when it makes sense to do the, like a widespread public sale, it's probably not that often. I mean, I think if you're setting up an entity such that the value is going to be in a token instead of some equity like a normal company and you need investors to partner with, then like, you know, by all means, like selling some tokens makes sense. But if you assume that at some point the tokens are going to have utility, then you want to be selling them to customers customers, not widespread investing masses. I think in terms of public ICOs, I'm skeptical of a lot of use cases for them, especially in the current US regulatory environment. Yeah. And then the other thing I'm worried about is actually, I just heard this term from Ryan Zur at Polychain just yesterday, but I think it's very, very important and kind of scary, actually. The term is moon rot. Teams have an incredibly powerful and, I mean, it's a life-changing amount of money have come their way in the form of hitting the, you know, getting to the moon with their token. Um, and then suddenly things rot because suddenly people aren't showing up to work. People aren't actually actually um, updating the GitHub anymore, so that goes to a crawl. Or some, you know, in a lot of cases, and this is the completely insane part, teams that said they, they would ship, said that they were going to do X, they never even get to X. They just kind of abscond with it. It's like exit stage left. It's insane. So we think we're, that's a very dangerous aspect of what's been happening the past year or two. On the other side, what are your thoughts on tokenized assets? Because I think the tokenized asset model from everything from digital assets to, you know, matching it to real world assets has a lot of potential, especially for automating smart contracts, you know, for example, being able to buy a home and 
to execute a smart contract to be able to do that and tokenize the equity and being able to push a button to be able to buy a home, lease a car, do some of these things that currently have like lengthy legal processes and there may be a fax machine involved. We can actually get rid of a lot of that by tokenizing assets. What are your thoughts on tokenized assets? I love the concept of security tokens. I'm a believer in that. And then the main problem is how do we get the user experience up and the compliance up to a point where it can happen? Everyone talks about infrastructure versus apps. I think this is totally a killer app. To me, it's pretty obvious that when you sign up for a Schwab account, you can go online and you can actually buy publicly traded stocks in a very standardized way. The promise of a security token is to be able to do that with very, very low cost, with the infrastructure all baked in, potentially KYC and AML all built in, and then standard legal docs and standard governance and standard smart contracts that make sure that you know dividends are split up the right way and all of that. But even if you take that example, apart, there are so many pieces that we still need. You know, the user experience part is insane still, where really, are, are you going to try to buy Ethereum and then transfer it to your MetaMask? You know, you have to download MetaMask and then you have to wait. Right now, Ethereum confirmation times are relatively fast, but people are conditioned to 200 milliseconds at this point, even, you know, waiting five seconds for a little spinner that's really not going to cut it. And then at the KYC AML level, you know, we've seen dozens of different attempts at this. And then at the exchange level, there needs to be some sort of exchange or clearinghouse. But, you know, not all, all of these things have not come together yet. We all kind of see the fever dream and how are we going to make it a reality? And what do you think the potential is once we achieve that reality, do you, is this is this a game changer? Is tokenizing assets? I look at even possibly the digital asset market. For example, you look at like what's happened with Fortnite. Skins in a game have turned them into a billion dollar plus company, and they're just literally selling a cosmetic digital asset within a game. So, what do you think about digital assets as a potential in gaming, in VR, augmented reality? Is is that going to become a thing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Alexis actually recently visited the offices of Fortnite and hung out with the CEO there. It turns out that they're doing a billion dollars in sales per month. You know, it's not even an exchange. There's no way you can exchange this stuff. So, People sell Fortnite accounts on eBay like for true. thousands of dollars to oh, get absolutely. exclusive items. That's madness. So I don't know. I wish Vince were here, but Brett, maybe you can talk about um, one of our... Uh, digital asset companies out of Toronto. Yeah, we invested in a company called uh, Horizon Labs. They're building a, you know, they're building a game. Uh, they're calling it Skyweaver. You know, it's like a, a card-based strategy game, kind of, you know, like maybe a game of Magic the Gathering. Uh, but you actually get to own your cards entirely independently of the of the company itself. And give it the way that it, it kind of matches how cards would work in the real world. Mm-hmm. Pack and then they're yours and you can trade them or sell them or whatever you like. But then I guess the, the extra angle in the, in the digital world is that some other company could decide to use the same token, you know, and integrate it in their game. And so you have like these remixing possibilities, which could get really fascinating. The thing again for you, you know, I hate to harp on user experience. I actually just gave a 90 minute talk at YC Startup School about design. So it's definitely on my mind. But, you know, I always return to that because it really is about those users and what's their experience like. And so 
for uh, a game like Skyweaver, it's actually incredibly important that some a normal user who might not even know what Ethereum is, they need to actually be able to go to the iOS or Android app store and download this game and just start playing. And then once they get into it, maybe they get issued or you know, magically you get a rare card. Well, then maybe you want to trade it. Maybe then you uh, do a Coinbase Connect. And so that's sort of one thing that I think is very much missing, but could be literally the next inflection point that pops us out of this crypto winter. It's this idea of mobile SDKs for Android and iOS. I think that that's going to be a very special moment when someone can just play a game that might use Ethereum with digital goods, but not worry about all of these fiat to crypto madness that you have to worry about today. Really, there's only one company I can think of that has the ability to do that, and that's Coinbase. And so I think watch out for that. That's going to be <laughs> real. I mean, I think it's just really going to open things up. You know, it could, uh, USB just released a really interesting essay literally about this. You know, we've been in the infrastructure phase for so long, you know, <laughs> about those apps. And so yeah. I think the apps are coming and we're definitely looking out for them especially with layer two. I think layer two helps us skip ahead a, a few turns of, uh, you know, of this poker game. You know, we're we're going to get to see usable apps on layer two with these mobile SDKs really in, as soon as the next 18 months. And what are some other technologies that you guys are bullish on right now? And one thing I keep seeing everywhere is zero-knowledge zero proofs. So I'm really, I mean, I think that privacy is going to be, be a big deal in the future of mm-hmm. you know, blockchain and crypto technologies. And so as, you know, you know, Starks and now ZK Starks. I think that I see more and more projects including it um, strategically. And even, you know, I was just at ETH Berlin, um, the hackathon from ETH Global in Berlin. And, and it seemed like a lot of projects were able to in- integrate, integrate some sort of zero knowledge proof technology into Ethereum use cases. So I imagine that it'll, that'll, that, it'll that, 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 that sort of stuff will spread across many of the blockchains. And do you guys, you know, there's been a lot of concerns right recently with like data breaches and privacy issues and, you know, Silicon Valley is kind of going through a a shift right now in terms of what it means to protect users' data. So do you think with Cambridge Analytica scandals and I think Facebook just like got hacked again with 50 million accounts, do you see potential security solutions as being an area of focus in the future or any thoughts there? Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, it's pretty hard to secure machines. Yeah. I mean, but also at the same time, you know, we're kind of, I feel like we're sitting on systemically a bit of a landmine here. And so like security is going to have to get figured out for the future of computing. We, I mean, we got involved in a company called Nano VMs. They're currently enterprise only, but I think it's a very interesting idea in that they're a very direct implementation of this idea of unikernels. Uh, You know, Linux and all of its variants has actually an incredible amount of multi-user processes and all of these things that come from 40 years ago. And so mm-hmm. now we live in this world of containers and you can think of the bare metal might have 15, 20, like as many as hundreds of servers. I mean, and you have sort of that part of uh, Unix more or less duplicated over and over again. And so the idea of a unikernel is interesting in that if you could take all of the uh, app level code and collapse it down into just the code that you actually need to run for that container, that's basically what a unikernel is. It's funny because it's a little bit of a forgotten part of a container. And if you search online, there's a lot of uh, debate back and forth about, oh, you know, now you lose multiple levels of user permission. And so is that more secure? On the other hand, you basically can't drop to a shell. It's an interesting space, which some of our uh, security expert friends have actually just mentioned. In a world of zero days, this actually might be the only solution. Obviously, the containerization and just the way that we deploy servers has changed so much since you know, I started 
first started writing code. We're seeing so much evolution there. You can even apply it to a hardware level as well. So you, as you mentioned, you can run multiple containers on the hardware. So you could even have cases where you swap out different containers running different versions of the code. So that could be the future of updates for even updating your, your iPhone or you know, hardware devices, swapping out different containers and different components because everything's containerized. So there's a lot that you can do on the virtualization side of things, especially with unikernels. There's Docker and Kubernetes and all these new microservice systems. And when you actually start to apply some of that stuff to blockchain is where it gets really interesting. And then it gets even more interesting if you start applying AI and machine learning into the equation as well. A lot of these things, you're going to combine these, these technologies. That's what's going to happen over time is right now there's blockchain, right now there's machine learning, there's DevOps and unikernels and all of these things. But once you combine some of these technologies, I think that's when it's going to be really cool. And we're going to see some really new use cases and applications that come out of that. For us, it's hard because we don't like the tech just on its own. We really like applying, basically, let's find the problem for a customer, a user, or whatever. And then one of the number one things that Brett asks when a crypto company comes in is like, well, why blockchain? Why not just a centralized database, actually? <laughs> and then you'd a be... Good way to end half the conversations. Yeah. Yeah, it ends a lot of conversations, actually. <laughs> but Brett just stares at them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's something, I mean, because it's something that's so ingrained in us as builders in our normal investment. Like, who are your users? Who have you talked to? What is the pain point that we can't help but help but ask the similar questions in crypto pitches? And it's a weird thing where you kind of have to accept, like, certainly if you're, if you're deploying a new layer one distributed ledger, you have to decide things ahead of time because it's intentionally going to be out of your control very soon. It's kind of a different way of building things than I'd say we're used to in a lot of, a lot of our investment in our careers as builders so the walking that line is I don't know it's fun yeah it's like yeah it's always good if you like awkwardness it's fun (laughs) today's show is sponsored by Datadog a monitoring and analytics platform that integrates with more than 250 technologies including all AWS services such as Lambda Kubernetes and Docker Datadog unites metrics traces and logs in one platform so you can get full visibility into your infrastructure and applications With powerful dashboards, anomaly and outlier detection, and distributed tracing, Datadog helps you get a handle on the performance of your serverless applications, as well as their underlying infrastructure. Try it for yourself by starting a free 14-day trial today. Listeners of this podcast will receive a free Datadog t-shirt. Sign up using the link in the description below. But, you know, my favorite thing is that we've already talked about some of the interesting scenarios that could not happen with just a centralized database, right? I mean, clearly, if gaming companies could, you know, release a centralized server, they probably would have already. But clearly, you do need some sort of decentralized marketplace for these um, digital goods. And so that's a novel use case that does not exist yet and that actually requires the blockchain, a public blockchain. And so that's compelling. Or, uh, you know, decentralized exchanges for security tokens, that's novel and interesting because that's something that could not happen necessarily with the centralization. There was a whole wave of crowdfunding where that just turned out to be something that was mainly lead gen because you still, you know, once you had the commitment on the website, it still de-evolved to paper and pencil, literally people still sending in faxes with IDs. It fell back to something that was totally broken, which is the non-software way of doing things by hand with individual contracts and lawyers, right? And this is crowdfunding for companies, crowdfunding for real estate, for all manner of things. It just de-evolved into something that would be try to get some Google juice and try 
to buy some ads on Facebook and then do like the CAC to LTV arbitrage. And it's like, that's not interesting. What's interesting is a standalone decentralized marketplace. Let's do it. You know, like, <laughs> where is it? You know, that's the dream. That's how crypto goes from something that is basically a toy all for speculation, which is where we are today, to something that actually encapsulates some large percent of goods and services in GDP. And to me, like a big part of the value thing is like, you know, like a lot of the hardcore crypto decentralization is, you know, talks about like things like censorship resistance and strict Bitcoin. Like this is decentralized, the government can never get at it. But there's this whole other tier of things. And I think this is kind of where the security token thing comes into play, where like someone could have rewritten, you know, the systems that run securitization. But in a decentralized way, it's a lot easier to coalesce on standards because no one owns it. It's inherent. And so you don't have, you don't need these thing, weird things like web consortiums where these big companies are trying to hash things out and there's all these players who can never agree. Everyone's already on the same page that no one owns the network. And so they can just kind of buy into it as a standard that works across multiple large enterprises. So I've got to ask, this is the Hacker Noon podcast. So what is a time that you guys have hacked something? Well, what's funny is, you know, YC is such a big part of it, has been such a big part of my life that I, you know, it's hard for me to remember a time where it wasn't a part of my life. But from the outside, when I was just reading Hacker News and I hadn't applied yet, you know, I went to a startup school in 2008 and I was a really big gadget buff. And so photography is one of those deep, dark, like infinite holes that you can just fall down. And so I got into photography and I brought my big 70 to 200 millimeter Canon lens. And I basically went and plopped myself on the aisle and took really good high quality photos of all the speakers. And when I got done, I put it on Posturus, which was, uh, you know, our blog platform at the time. And I posted it at Hacker News and I got voted to the top of Hacker News. And so a month later, I think Sachin and I applied to YC and when we showed up in Mountain View and got our interview. The first thing that Paul and Jessica mentioned was, oh yeah, thanks for coming. You, we picked you out because we thought you took very nice photos. So this blog <laughs> thing, whatever, but... <laughs> You're the photo guy, yeah. <laughs> That's my story. Just as a Apoorva sent me a six pack of beer to get the interview, I took photos and tried to <laughs> that way. And the funniest thing is it worked. I was just interested in cameras and photography anyway. And I think that that's always the thing that's really cool about um, being a nerd. is <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> get infinitely deep on almost any subject. And if you actually just practice it the way you want to practice it, really amazing things that always happen in my life because of it. It's funny, I kind of have like a like alternate ending on the same story. Oh, like I, I applied to YC a few times before I got in. And the second to last time was the same idea that it eventually got funded and we got rejected. But then, you know, we built the thing anyway. And it was it was like white level Reddit before they were Reddit. And they needed a system to gather questions for startup school, like how AMAs work now. And so Jessica reached out and they used it for startup school. And then when we got there for our interview, PG's the first thing he said was, we've actually used yourself. So, it definitely uh, helps if they've already used your code. Yeah. <laughs> Do you guys have any final thoughts? Well, I mean, at the end of the day for Initialized, we want to help other fellow hackers who just basically are builders. Like literally the only reason why we're doing this fun is actually that we think that there's infinite capital in the world. And that was the most shocking thing for me coming into this. As founders and as engineers, you know, work for other people most of my career until I applied to YC. And once I got on the other side, I just really was shocked at how much capital, you know, when you, you turn on the news and they talk about negative 
negative interest rates for bonds. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. It means that there's too much money in the world and everyone wants yield. And so the really crazy thing to realize is that the only very, very pure type of yield is exactly the kind of value creation that engineers can, engineers and designers and product people can do, you know? Mm. They sit in front of a computer and make a thing that possibly a billion people use and it changes their life ideally for better. You know, when that happens, it's magic and the magic happens. Mm -hmm. And it's the weirdest, worst thing about working in finance today is that there is this obvious and extreme mentality that is in the hearts of not every finance person I ever meet, but a good deal of them. And they really do think there's too much money chasing too few deals, too few ideas, and too few uh, too few good people. And that's insane to me. Definitely, there's too much money, but basically an infinite number of incredibly smart people. Your listeners and viewers right now are capable. If you're paying attention to Hacker News and Hacker Noon, and you're reading this stuff, this is the stuff that I read when I was you know, working for someone else's startup and working for Microsoft before that. So you and I are not different. We're the same. And you are capable of building things that actually go and change the world. And that's why Paul Graham was so incredibly meaningful to me and so many other people in our community is that, hey, he was the first one to write these essays that made us realize we're capable. We're not different. All of the finance people in the world, all of the money in the world is actually seeking exactly us. It's actually seeking people who can create. That's the thing that's the limiting reagent. Software engineers are the limiting reagent. It's not the money. And that's the freaking craziest thing. So that's my thing. It's like, hey, initialize. Like, We want to find great people just like us. We want to be the investors to help you get there. And we always want to help. And where can people find you? Initialize.com. I'm on Twitter at uh, at Gary Tan, G-A-R-R-Y-T-A-N. You can also email me at Gary, G-A-R-R-Y, at Initialize.com. Brett? I'm on Twitter at at Brett, D-G-B-R-E-T-T-D-G, and then I'm Brett at Initialize. Well, thank you guys for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot. Hey, yo, you got a great tech story you want to get published? Maybe something about bots taking over Twitter or how Bitcoin actually works? Or maybe you just have a story about how to build a great software, a great team. Get your expertise published on Hacker Noon. Email us, stories at hackernoon.com, and a real human will review your submission. This concludes another episode of the Hacker Noon podcast. I'm your host, Trent Lipinski. Please don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and YouTube and follow us on social media. You can also find us at hackernoon.com and podcast.hackernoon.com for more episodes. Thank you for listening.